This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. This is just a horrific story, and I'm sure you've seen it. We've talked about these sorts of things in the past. Uh, however, what frightens me is the uh, the baby boomer population makes its way through the demographic. Uh, these problems are going to get uh, uh, more frequent, I- I'm scared of. Lawsuits have been filed against a pair of long-term care providers saying that they were uh, systematically negligent towards residents. Uh, and anybody who's dealt with parents or grandparents in scenarios like this, you know how difficult it can be. And when you add this into the issue, uh, as, as far as care that they're not getting or even abuse, it's uh, it's even more troubling. Uh, troubling. Let's bring in Laura Tamblin Watts, National Director, Law Policy and Research with CARP. And is gone. No, <laughs> just just went and hit the phone and all of a sudden disappeared. Uh, Luke's going to try to. Uh, uh, to get her back on. Um, yeah, this is, you know, I, I'm dealing with this with, with you know, my own situation, our own family, with uh, my parents who are in their uh, mid to late 80s and, um, and and the same sort of thing. Uh, it's very, very difficult to try to make the decision to, to leave the family home and go into special care. That's difficult enough. And, and the process and trying to find something. And then, uh, you know, to have those conditions be substandard is just not acceptable. Uh, Laura Tamlin Watts with us, National Director, Law Policy and Research with CARP, and is with us now. Laura, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Thank you. Tell everybody what CARP is. So CARP is a 300,000-person member organization, formerly known as the Canadian Association of Retired Persons. We have 26 chapters across the country. And I'm guessing growing. We're growing every day, that's right. And so what we know is that as older people are you know, aging longer, that we have more and more opportunity to talk about issues across the life course. So uh, surprised at what we've heard in the news this week about these homes and these Not patients? Not very surprised, no, sadly. Um, what we know is that many people do get excellent long-term care and have wonderful experiences in long-term care, but we certainly know that there are horror stories as well. Uh, these two companies, are they well-established? Are they larger companies? They're very, very large companies. Indeed, they have uh, long-term care homes across Canada and throughout the United States. So how does this happen with a company that's this large and organized? Well, I mean, I think it's a, a few pieces in here. It's not just sort of the companies, but it's also who they have working and what the minimum staffing hour issues are. So let me just take that apart a little bit. So what we know is we need more long-term care home beds and availability. We also know that there's a shortage of staff, other personal support workers or nurses in the long-term care home system. And we know that in terms of the number of hours or the quality of care, it's not what we would hope. So it's not just a quick fix question. Um, it really is looking at all the different aspects of staffing and care and care hours across the whole long-term care system. But again, at the end of the day, in a situation like this, where it's, it, it appears that neglect is obvious, uh, and again, we can, certainly can't pass judgment because we, do, we, we don't know all of, the, uh, all of the information, but is this more a government issue than it is an institutional issue, than it is an organizational or, or private industry issue? Government's a key, key player because really that's where the funding predominantly comes from is it comes from government funding. And so when we're looking at where the investment has to play, it really does need to be significant government dollars as well as looking at on a downstream flow. So you see that in the election platforms, some of the election platforms are specifically addressing the training and retention requirements of staffing and long-term care. So uh, this, and I'm guessing there's two scenarios here, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm guessing if you've got money to put your parents or grandparents into a a well-established home with with some sort of uh, 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 reputable care, uh, you're okay. But if if you're not in that predicament, that's when you fall through the cracks. Is that accurate? I wish that was accurate in a way that would be easier, but it's actually more complex than that. 
Well, it's true that you can get a retirement home, which is that private pay option. Really, it's supposed to be a tenancy plus some extra services. We can see that retirement homes, which are private pay, have now moved into offering services like dementia care and really moving almost into a parallel system uh, to our long-term care homes, but with much, much less regulation. So while it's true that you can sometimes get you know, more extensive or, if you will, fancier private pay services, they have less regulation and oversight. And so that's kind of a, a plus and a minus in one point, but they can be very expensive. By contrast, our uh, long-term care facilities are more affordable on the whole, although that they have a spectrum of costs if you want extra types of services. So are these, sorry for interrupting, are these are these public services or are these privately funded? Right. So our long-term care home is predominantly uh, funded through government, right. but with some additional payments right. which individuals make. Right. And so and sadly, it's not really as if you pay more, you get better service. Yeah. Um, and it's not even if it's a new building, it's a better service. Hmm. It really is what's happening at that local center. Sometimes the places with the ugliest long-term care homes have the best services and qualities. And so it really requires a lot of uh, looking and being careful about matching needs with abilities. But the problem is... Right now, the wait list to get into long-term care in Ontario is two to three years. So very often, it's only what's available in your neighborhood, and choice is much more of an illusion. Uh, So what do we need to do to correct this? Because obviously, there's a train wreck coming in the sense that the the baby boomer demographic is moving its way through. So in the next 10 10 to 20 years, I'm guessing this is only going to get more of a, become more of an issue. What do we need to do here? It's a great question. We need to look at increasing the number of beds in long-term care. There's no question. We simply need more capacity. But at the same time, we need to make sure that we backfill our services so people don't end up in long-term care. We need to really invest in home care services so people can stay in their own homes longer, which is mostly where they want to be and provide additional support services for caregivers in the community so people don't end up in long-term care if they have other options. So what about, uh, so is this something that should be regulated provincially? Is that, should there be federal uh, legislation on this? Because again, I'm sure it's a, pro- I'm sure it's a problem countrywide. Uh, Great question. So every single section for long-term care is regulated per province or territory. In Ontario, we have incredibly regulated long-term care homes. In fact, it's the second most regulated industry after nuclear power. So when we look at long-term care home system regulations, the fault may not be at that regulation level. The fault is often at the... Oh, have we lost her? Laura, are you there? We were just, to find, we were just about to find out where the fault was, too. You know, oh, hang on a sec. We're going to, you know what, let's want to take a quick break here. Let's take a quick break. We'll try to reestablish the line. Laura Tamblin-Watts is with us, National Director of Law Policy Research for CARP, talking about... Oh, we've got her back. Laura, you there? Hang on. Laura, are you there? I am. Oh, you're back. It's magic. Okay, that's good. Um, so I forgot what we were talking about before. Well, uh, I said that the problem is not the regulation. Point. Right. We have lots and lots of regulation. The problem is capacity. So we don't have enough dollars, we don't have enough people, and we don't have enough services to match the regulation requirements in many cases. So, uh, again, this is a problem that is obviously going to increase. What can we do to prepare for this? Uh, If we're having these sorts of issues now, how do we prepare for the future? We need to invest in people who are creating long-term care home services and services for older people. So more jobs need to be created in nursing and care provision. But we also need to support family caregivers to have respite care at home and support people to be able to take leaves in workplaces so people don't necessarily end up in long-term care who don't need to be there. But when we look at what happens within the long-term care home system, it has to be a top priority for government. Are we doing enough to protect seniors from the abuse or, or, or what we're seeing, the neglect, I guess, that we're seeing in these situations? Well, elder abuse is a huge issue. We think it's probably about one in eight older people will suffer elder abuse at some point in their life. 
And we know that about 8.7% of older people have experienced abuse in the last one year. So the answer is we need to do much more on elder abuse. Looking at the question of abuse within long-term care homes, you know, we have to make sure that residents are safe from each other. Residents and staff are safe from each other. We need to make sure that the, uh, the type of care is, is the amount of services are required are met. So there's a lot of pieces at play here. What we know is while many people get excellent care, many people don't. So are penalties adequate in this sort of th- when this sort of thing happens? And again, you know, at the end of the day, with what we saw in the, and again, we can't comment too many, too much on these cases, but with what we've seen with these cases that have come forward, um, can we blame that on, on, um, you know, staffing or, or, or issues beyond the home's control or, uh, go ahead. Yeah, there, there are no minimum staffing requirements in long-term care. And that's really important to say, it seems shocking to imagine that there are no minimum staffing requirements. Right now, it says in the legislation you have to have adequate staffing, but what we can see is that there isn't, in many cases, adequate staffing at all. So minimum standards, I think, are an important thing to move forward and put in place in long-term care. If we have those minimums, we have to remember that they are just minimums and that people may need more care than the minimum. When we're looking at things like penalties, The reason why this particular litigation is going forward, I think, is to show the impact of not living up to the expectations and standards. So so certainly it's it's what we call strategic impact litigation being brought forward to make a a big point and to see if the pocketbooks of long-term care facilities will be impacted in a way that helps to shock the system. The challenge is, no, we don't have enough long-term care facilities to begin with. So if we start trying to bring large penalties against them, the right. concern is that they will simply close. Hmm. And that will mean that older residents who are very frail and in long-term care may have nowhere to go to at all. So we really need to look at it from a system point of view and an investment with government point of view. Because putting long-term care homes out of business just makes more older people homeless. Did we not see this coming? Are we not seeing the future? I mean, because we, we're talking about it a lot. We certainly know about the demographic. And I think it's really important to remember that ageism is the most prevalent form of discrimination in the world. The World Health Organization announced a report in 2017 that said, based on any other form of discrimination in the world, ageism is the single most prevalent form above gender, above race, above orientations, etc. And so ageism is rife through our culture. And part of it is we don't want to look at aging in the vulnerable stages. So we talk about healthy aging and active aging and anti-aging, and we do live much longer. And while only about 8% of all older people will ever end up in long-term care, so it's not a lot, 8%. Those people do require significant investments and supports. So what we know is if people are looking through an ageist lens, if you can invest money in children, most people want to invest money in children, and they don't want to necessarily invest money for older people. So when we're looking at the why of it, I really think about it within an ageist lens. Uh, advice for those who are in this position, whether it's, you, you know, kids looking for a place for parents or grandparents, a- any advice? Absolutely. So there's a few great resources you can turn to. There's a wonderful organization in Ontario called Family Councils Ontario. And Family Councils Ontario helps to support people who will have somebody in long-term care, whether it be a family member or a close friend. And they're a great resource, and, and you can go on their website at Family Councils Ontario and get great information and support. If you're in a concern about a question of abuse, a wonderful resource to turn to is Elder Abuse Ontario, and they've got great networks and resources as well. You can always call the police if something is really going wrong, and each long-term care facility has the requirement for a whistleblower provision as well as reporting to the director of care. So if you see a problem, report it. 
Laura Tamlin Watts has been with us, National Director, Law Policy and Research with CARP, uh, talking about the uh, frightening, uh, the frightening images, the frightening stories we have all heard uh, in regard to senior care of late. Laura, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show weekdays from noon to three on AM 900 CHML. Let's go down south and find out what's happening in the life of uh, President Trump. Uh, the President of the United States. Oh, yeah, we've got the clips first. Oh, my goodness. All right. Um, and these are, sorry. This is the lawyer of Stormy Daniels first. That a woman came forward, a, a adult film star, made up a story about having sex with the president. They didn't believe her. They knew she was lying. And they promptly paid her $130,000. It's absurd. Uh, this is Rudy Giuliani, who uh, went on TV and, uh, for some reason, which we're still trying to figure out, uh, basically contradicted everything that Trump has said in regard to his association with Stormy Daniels and his lawyers. Here's what Rudy had to say. Paying some Stormy Daniels woman 130000 I mean, which is going to turn out to be perfectly legal. That money was not campaign money. Sorry, I'm giving you a fact now that you don't know. It's not campaign money. No campaign finance violation. Wow. Uh, Let's bring in Claire Finkelstein, professor of law and professor of philosophy, University of Pennsylvania Law School, and is with us now. Claire, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Glad to do so. Uh, Claire, how do you explain what Rudy Giuliani has said? Uh, For weeks, uh, the Trump camp has been um, uh, saying that this just didn't happen. They they know nothing about it. And then all of a sudden, Rudy Rudy Giuliani comes out and says that uh, very nonchalantly, oh, yeah, that it happened, but it wasn't this, it was that. How do you explain this? Well, this is a disaster for Donald Trump, and everyone seems to know it, including Trump himself, though there's been some attempted damage control. Uh, Giuliani was not thinking straight. Uh, He's not the sharpest tool in the shed, uh, and he hasn't practiced law for a long time. Uh, He was obviously trying to defend against the charge that this was a campaign finance violation and mistakenly thought that if it was clear that Trump was paying back Michael Cohen for the $130,000, that it would be shown not to be a campaign finance violation. And he was wrong about that because a campaign finance violation can be made made out by a loan as well as a gift. Uh, So he just miscalculated. There's a story that came out today suggesting that he did not consult with the White House before he conducted those interviews. That was my next question. Yeah, the usual disorganization um, in anyone surrounding the president and how he coordinates with those individuals who were supposed to be out there stumping for him um, so that he really isn't in control of the messaging that goes out uh, by his own legal team. So you think this was a mistake on Giuliani's part as opposed to him somehow trying to let the information out the back door as if no one would notice and then distract us by by going in another direction by saying, well, it's not a campaign donation. So in other words, do you, th- do you think he planned yeah. to release this information? No. I Well, I think... He was not being vetted by the rest of the legal team. He was not being carefully managed. The message wasn't coordinated. He may have thought this was a good defense of the president, but clearly it was a mistake. I don't think it was an intentional letting information out the back door. That I don't believe. And the that's borne out by remarks that have been occurring today yesterday and today um, after the initial interview uh, on uh, Wednesday night um, that have been backpedaling a little bit. And there's been an attempt to square the president's denial that he knew about this payment with what Giuliani released. So uh, there was a suggestion made that, in fact, he did not know about the payment and the nondisclosure agreement at the time that Michael Cohen set it up and that he only found out about it later. But And Sarah Huckabee Sanders uh, echoed that same 
view, that same explanation for why the president said what he did on Air Force One a few months ago. Uh, but there's been total vagueness around what he knew when, uh, and it's simply not believable, and I don't think anyone will believe that he did not know about the non-disclosure agreement. At Do, does it really matter, Claire, when he knew what or what he knew? Or, you know, because this is all being assumed, well, he's paying them a retainer, this lawyer retainer, and the, the, the lawyer's just taking this out of the retainer. Um, so, you know, whether he did know or he didn't know, if he wants to use that excuse, does that change anything? I think it changes a lot. Number one, it changes our perception of his trustworthiness uh, because he made those very clear remarks on Air Force One saying that he did not know of the non-disclosure agreement and, of course, has been denying all along that he was involved with Stormy Daniels sexually. Uh, so that puts the lie, very likely puts the lie to mm. both of those suggestions. Um, but it also, uh, second of all, opens up new avenues of legal peril, both for the president and for Michael Cohen. So it suggests that Michael Cohen was, in fact, in a conspiracy and collaborating with the president to violate campaign finance laws. It's very different if you're doing something alone and it's illegal from if you plan to do it with someone else. So it opens potentially uh, Michael Cohen up to new legal charges, namely charges for conspiracy hmm. uh, that the president would also be implicated in. Uh, how would the White House be reacting to what Rudy Giuliani said? I mean, even in real time, especially if they didn't well, know, if it, especially if this hadn't been vetted. Yeah, apparently they were all shocked. Uh, at least that's what the report is. Uh, that they did not expect this revelation, that they hadn't been coordinating with uh, Giuliani, and uh, were, were really nonplussed that this occurred. Uh, I assume that there will be fallout from this internally. It could be that Giuliani won't, in fact, keep his position, uh, though at the moment the president doesn't show any signs of distancing himself from Giuliani. I assume that it is under discussion given what a goop this was. What is Trump's reaction to what Giuliani said? Well, he's been tweeting today about this uh, and has tried, as I said, to sort of backpedal and to, to try to reconcile his own prior remarks uh, denying his knowledge of the non-disclosure agreement with what Giuliani said. Uh, so he is now in a series of tweets that he released yesterday, uh, excuse me, not today, yesterday. Uh, he has been suggesting that he did know about it when Michael Cohen was being paid back uh, and tried to justify it by saying that it was a payment meant to stop false and extortionate claims against himself uh, and, of course, suggesting that it was a justified thing to do. He also tweeted by, by trying to defend this kind of agreement more generally and saying that this kind of agreement is very common among celebrities and people of wealth, suggesting that they are easy prey for people who are trying to extort money against them. Uh, wow. Um, how is this playing out in, in public, the fact that, you know, these stories keep changing? Well, I think that's not playing very well, and uh, I refuse to believe that his base of support will continue completely unaffected by this kind of back and forth. It makes the president out to be a liar. Uh, it makes it very difficult to believe anything that Sarah Huckabee Sanders says. There were calls for her to step down. I think it's just about as damaging as it could be. Uh, the other thing that I should have mentioned is that uh, Giuliani was very significant. His remarks were very significant for the motivation that he attributed to Michael Cohen for setting up this non-disclosure agreement, which is that it was moments before uh, one of the debates and very shortly before the election. And so in his own comments, Giuliani tied this NDA to 
campaign-related ends. Hmm. And that's something that the president in his tweets was also trying to deny, saying this was purely personal and was not tied to campaign aims. Uh, it had to be tied to campaign aims in order for it to be a campaign uh, finance violation. And therefore, one might expect some legal fallout from this, that it will be necessary to put Trump under oath and to hear his testimony to try to determine his state of mind in agreeing to set up the NDA. What, how would Michael Cohen be handling all of this, what Rudy Giuliani well, it, has said? It puts Michael Cohen under an enormous amount of additional pressure. As I say, it opens up the possibility of new legal charges against Michael Cohen, uh, a new legal avenue to hold against him, uh, and also suggests that assuming that he has engaged in some testimony under oath um, in talking to investigators, that he may have lied. And so there may be new perjury, uh, potential of uh, perjury charges against him. So it broadens the area for a potential indictment against him. And what that does, of course, is to increase the likelihood that he will flip and turn against right. the president and testify against him in exchange for some kind of immunity to prosecution. So they can't use uh, and him... that's a game-changer. They can't use him as a fall guy because he will flip. It's very possible. It's mm. very possible. And so you, you should, of course, note that the president, in his remarks, has been very charitable to Cohen, uh, trying very hard to send him... send up smoke signals and flares that uh, he will treat him well and trying to remind him of his duties of loyalty to the president, trying to oh convince my. him not to flip. Uh, but the pressures uh, on Michael Cohen just keep increasing. And, and so this is a, a really, as they say, unforced error on the Trump team, legal team's part to inadvertently increase pressure on Michael Cohen. So let me ask you this, Claire. Uh, lots of chatter. The, the, uh, Donald Trump uses a lot of, uh, 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 of terminology when talking about the media and fake news and such. Uh, now Fox News host Neil uh, Cavuto uh, takes on Trump in a monologue and basically uh, uh, takes him to task for making false and contradictory statements. So how does Trump play to this, and is this Fox News turning on Trump? Uh, well, it's a really good question. Fox News has been pretty unhappy uh, with the fallout from this, and one can kind of hope that they will start to get a little more objectivity in their uh, willingness to host the president and his spokespersons. So it is pretty significant that Cavuto just, you know, ripped into the president's uh, conflicting and false statements, uh, saying that uh, he, he is uh, confusing people, that he's, uh, no one can figure out which news is fake. Uh, and uh, that, that's pretty important. And it's encouraging to see that even Fox News is willing to say we have a certain amount of integrity in the way that we present information. Uh, to quote him, let me be clear, Mr. President, how can you drain the swamp if you are the one who keeps muddying the waters? Yeah, exactly. I mean, this he, he's, not, he's not holding back here. Uh, how is Donald Trump going to handle this? Is he going to try to get him fired, too? Well, you wonder about that because Sean Hannity hasn't shown the same integrity in putting out information that either hurts or helps the president uh, and is not really an objective uh, host of a news organization. So uh, one wonders whether or not Cavuto is, is due for a change of uh, networks. Uh, what does that say if all of a sudden he exits? Well, I, that'll be an interesting uh, development, though. You know, I think that, that Fox News really hangs in the balance as a credible news organization, uh, or, or perhaps I should say uh, hung in the balance and, and has already gone over the line. 
if they keep Cavuto on, it'll be very much to their credit, and they start to reestablish their um, credentials as a um, as a reliable news organization and as a more objective news organization. So we will see what happens on that on that front. Could this be the pendulum swinging back that, you know, from a president that's that's constantly used the term fake news, that's constantly made everybody question sources that they would normally uh, not or, or, or certainly um, deem viable? Uh, is the pendulum swinging back here as, as, as the president's inaccuracies just mount up, just add up? Well, the interesting thing about it is that Republicans in the House and Senate, for the most part, with a few exceptions like Trey Gowdy um, and others who were sort of keeping the faith and then broke uh, the faith, um, have by and large stuck by the president and have been willing to tolerate all the inconsistencies and, and all the lies and disinformation. Uh, and so until there are significant Republican breaks with the president, I think it'll be very difficult for for the momentum behind this to really result in anything. Uh, now, what's going on with Rod Rosenstein um, maybe has more potential to do that uh, because it's very, um, you know, the, the Republicans who have drawn up articles of impeachment against uh, Rosenstein and his willingness to speak out and say this is really extortionate, uh, that is heading for a showdown between the president and Rod Rosenstein. And you know that the president is sitting there trying to figure out how he can possibly fire Rosenstein without it being another example of obstruction of justice and coming back to haunt him. Easy, so easy, an enormous e- showdown there. Easy, you just fire Rudy Giuliani at the same time to distract everybody. Um, <laughs> get, <laughs> getting back, getting back to what happened, and I keep going back to this tape of him on Air Force One saying no, 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 and then Rudy Giuliani saying what he did the other night. How is this not a great example for everyone to say? Something's going on here. This guy keeps changing the story and at very least is playing loose with the facts. Well, he points to everybody. He's calling everyone else a liar when it appears like he's the only one lying. Right. Well, he does tend to cast this sort of pixie dust of confusion, this haze around facts. And so what I find most concerning and disturbing is that our elected representatives are not calling him out on this and saying, you know, Mr. President, we're prepared to support you, but you got to tell the truth to the American people and you have to tell the truth to us. And so, you know, we're not, we can't support you if you don't fly straight here and acknowledge where you're at fault. Uh, Bill Clinton famously did this and it actually saved his presidency. I would say he acknowledged uh, having eventually acknowledged having done wrong with regard to Monica Lewinsky. Uh, and I think that the, um, the House and Senate were, were, particularly the Senate, which declined to convict him on the impeachment, was, was inclined to sort of accept it as an apology. Uh, now, Trump needs to do something like that, uh, or he eventually, I think, uh, the political winds will finally blow against him and Republicans will give up supporting him. But when that's going to happen, it may be that Rod Rosenstein or trying to fire Mueller will be the thing that eventually pushes that over the edge. Does he question what most know as fact? Does he question those facts and create confusion, even though we know white is black and black is white, in order to disguise when he's telling lies, in order to throw a smokescreen? So, in other words, he makes the truth look so untruthful that when he tells a lie, it does look truthful, or maybe it might be. I think it's more that we're in a kind of uh, post-truth politics where the truth does not, is not perceived as mattering to the American people. Hmm. Now, I believe ultimately that will prove false. But the sense is that in a, in a world in which our politics have gotten so partisan, uh, and so oriented towards fighting the other party. So extreme. That, 
so extreme uh, that it's trench warfare. And, and just as in kinetic warfare, it doesn't seem to matter what tools you use at, in dealing with the enemy. That's sort of the, the way that the parties mm. seem to approach things at this point. And that puts us, as I say, in a kind of post-truth politics. Uh, it doesn't really deeply characterize our history. Of course, there's always been an element of that, many elements of that. But in the end, facts have always mattered in the past. So we are seeing a, a, a kind of sea change in what people expect from their elected officials or what those elected officials believe people care about, that they actually don't care about the facts. I hope that that will prove false in the end and that the American people actually will care to know the truth about these various matters affecting, deeply affecting their judgment about the president. Hmm. Did you ever think you'd be having these discussions? I never did. Uh, it is a, a, a huge change, especially after Obama, who was uh, a much straight, straighter shooter hmm. than we were used to, though uh, there were, of course, instances in which things were not revealed that later came out that, that shocked people, uh, that it was used to shock. <laughs> um, and that was true uh, during the Obama era. It was more true during the Bush era when there were many uh, sorts of government programs and, and the simulations that occurred and, of course, the basis for getting into the war in Iraq. Uh, but hmm. this is a level of ignoring the facts and and seeming to not care about them that we really haven't seen before in American politics. Claire, it is a quite disturbing development. Claire Finkelstein has been with us, professor of law and philosophy, University of Pennsylvania Law School. Claire, always fascinating. Thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Twitter has been messaging 330 million users and uh, advising them to change their passwords after a glitch that stored passwords uh, may have exposed them. To talk more about all of this, Sid Bolton is with us with the Personal Computer Museum. He's a curator up there. Sid is with us now. Sid, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. No problem. It seems like these privacy concerns are coming up. Every day. Uh, you bring up a valid point. Is this Twitter overreacting? Better to be safe than sorry? Would we have heard of this a year ago? You know, that's a good question. I would say as it was an, it's an internal issue. Um, and so what they're saying to us is that, you know, this is not a, a breach as such in terms of it's not that your data has been exposed to uh, anyone outside of Twitter. But I think it's it's kind of important, and I think given all that's happened with, with Facebook recently especially, that uh, if someone found out about this after the fact and Twitter didn't disclose it, I think that they're just really trying to be careful with, with what they do and what they let people know in terms of what's going on. So they're getting ahead of the story, and I guess it's never a bad idea to change your password. That's true. In fact, I think uh, just yesterday was National Password Day, so they're kind of off, hit the mark off by a day. But basically what has happened is that um, people sort of have this misconception that uh, large companies or anybody that, has, that stores passwords, that they know what your password is. And, and the reality of it is that they actually normally, under normal circumstances, they don't know what your password is. And you might think, well, that sounds ridiculous. Of course, they know what your password is. But to give you a little bit of technical background in layman's terms, hopefully, that you can understand, is that passwords, when they are stored on a system, are put through what's called a one-way hash. Uh, it sounds like a breakfast uh, sandwich, but it's not. Um, so this, what this hash mechanism does... Does that have anything to do with hashtag? No, it okay. doesn't. It's All right, I'm just, I'm just clarifying uh, that. And to, and, to, and to further make it sound like a breakfast thing, you can also have a salted hash, which, uh, no pepper, but just salt. Wow. So it's, it's basically, it's a process, and it's, it's a one-way process that takes your password, and then when it gets stored, it gets stored in a series of different characters that are, they're obviously they're related to right. the original password, but they can't be reverse engineered because the, the hash can actually be the same for different passwords. Um, 
but even though, so in other words, you can't take it and res- get the original back because it might come back to two or three different results. Right. And so the other thing that it does that's kind of cool is that it masks how long the password is. So even information about, you know, is it eight digits? Is it six? Is it 14? Is all lost when something is turned into a hash. So that's why when you forget your password, if you've ever wondered, because some people have said to me, why doesn't the system yeah. just tell me what my password is right now mm. so that I don't have to change it? The reason why is because they can't tell you what your password is because they don't know it. Right. And the reality is, is that Twitter was, was, uh, in the same situation that all other major companies are in. But what has happened is they had a bug in their system that when they were logging, basically when you would log in and say, okay, you know, Scott Thompson just logged into his Twitter account, um, they would then also log what your password was when it was decrypted, not as the salted hash. So that's what was happening is that internally at Twitter, there were files that were stored that actually showed what your password was. Right. And so... They became aware of this. They have expunged the data. But here's where and this the was just, problem is. And this was just on-site for them, correct? Just on-site for them. Mm-hmm. No one exter- there's no evidence that right. anyone externally right. has gotten that information. However, this is where it gets to be a little dicey and, and why you should go ahead and change your password on Twitter anyways. And that is because um, what happens if a disgruntled employee did manage to snag a copy of that database or that file before it was expunged? and somehow avoided any internal audits that would show that that file was taken. If someone's smart enough to do that, if they get let go of the company, you imagine they could sell that file in the future. So kind of like what happened, like this whole Facebook thing that we've been talking about recently with uh, yeah, same sort of all thing. that data, yeah. that happened years ago, right? Like that data was originally collected several years ago. Yeah. So uh, it wasn't as up to date as you might think. And so while if you don't change your password for a couple of years, it is possible that if this file does get out of the company in the future that you could be at risk. Now, Twitter, it's it's less, I think, a problem for most people because there's certainly less personal details on Twitter. There's usually no financial connection on Twitter, like you don't have any right. you know, uh, credit cards or stuff. But still, uh, you know what, just be safe, change your password. I'm sure I got the email this morning, you know, when I logged into Twitter saying, or the message I should say, yeah. saying, Please change your password. Um, so it's it's a problem, but I think the the real other things that have been going on in our world in terms of privacy concerns and data breaches and everything else that's happened has led them to to do this. But I think you're right, Scott. I think it's quite possible that just even a year ago they may not have bothered telling anybody about this. So where did this bug come from? How does this happen within the system? Does that mean it it had some sort of outside tampering? No, um, basically, you know, there's a whole bunch of tools and internal things that companies like Twitter would use to, you know, maintain the integrity of their system and also to catch problems with their system. So what would happen is, is they have a whole set of data that you don't even really think about. But for example, every single time you log in, they would keep track of that. They keep track of that it was you, say, Scott, that logged in. They would keep track of when you logged in, where you logged in from. So they would store, for example, the IP address. And that's also to protect your account and also could be used for uh, demographics information or say where our geographical information, like where are most of our active users from, as opposed to, you know, it's, it's easy to figure out how many, you know, you have your users registered. They tell you they're from Cambodia or they tell you they're from Canada or USA or wherever. That's one thing. But this would actually tell you where are they logging in and using their Twitter account from. And if you all of a sudden have always logged in from Hamilton, Ontario, and then one day you started logging in from Phoenix, Arizona, um, they may say, oh, are you, is this actually you? Are you there? Um, you know, and if you don't show a history, just like your credit cards, if you suddenly right. start using a credit card in another geographical area, yeah, they'll that call you. may be suspicious activity. Mm-hmm. So they do that kind of thing to protect your account. And so basically what they're doing is they're recording this information internally. It's just strictly used internally for statistical information and just for debugging. And what's happened is if someone has made a mistake because at the end of the day, you know, it's people that are doing all this stuff. I mean, we may think these are, you know, we're going on our devices and it's all device driven, but all of the experiences that we have with our devices are created by humans and humans of course are not perfect. So someone has made a mistake and uh, not properly secured that information. And it's not that hard to do uh, to make that mistake. And so fortunately, and who knows how long 
this logging has been going on for until someone said, uh, guys, there's mm. a problem here. <laughs> so how will users react to this? Will they look at this as a proactive measure or will they, will this be negative like Facebook? I, obviously, as you said, uh, these social media companies are obviously more sensitive to this now since we've seen what Facebook has gone through. Do people view this as being proactive? I think people are going to, the, the actual act itself, I don't think it's going to upset too many people. What I think is going to bother people overall is it's going to make them question the entirety of all of their social experiences. Again, it's yeah. like, okay, something's happened to Facebook. Something's happened to Twitter. Maybe we're just going to all close our phones and just listen to the radio. I mean, wouldn't that be great? I mean, uh, and, and not have to worry about all this stuff the way it used to be, Scott. Uh, yeah, my, uh, my job would be a lot more secure than it is now, or never has been, I might add. Uh, it, would biometric, getting back to the password thing, would biometric solve all this problem? Well, I mean, it would certainly get away from the needs of having to change and remember passwords. Um, it has its own set of issues and securities. And of course... So like, can that be as hacked just as easily or could you have just as the same issues with that as you are with this? Well, if you look at even like, for example, with the new iPhone 10, right, with a facial, facial recognition, um, it was shown pretty quickly after the phone was released, even when Apple said, oh, well, you know, it's not easy to fool our system. They're very careful to say it wasn't foolproof, but... Um, fairly quickly, they were showing how people's faces could be, um, you know, sort of faked with photographs and, and other things that were sort of used to simulate them. If you watch, uh, if you watch too much science fiction, you've seen, you know, with fingerprints, you've seen people uh, kill somebody and then take their finger and use that to log in. Um, and in fact, and I, I hate that to doesn't say work. This, but, well, apparently you know, it doesn't. Um, apparently it doesn't, but. It depends because there was actually a recent um, case uh, in the United States where there were some criminals that were shot and uh, the police actually went to the morgue and uh, used their hands to try to unlock their phones. But I understand they couldn't because so they were they couldn't, dead. They couldn't, but it hasn't stopped people from trying. Yeah, and yeah. there may be a process, a chemical process to help uh, bring those fingers back. Uh, that's it. Yeah. Like that. You just dip the finger in a little solution and it temporarily and brings it back to life. That's right. And that's then you right. get the electrode thing going on and there you I go. The finger crazy. is still alive. The guy's dead, but the thumb is still alive. But the thing is, Scott, is that no matter what we do, there's always going to be some mm. way to circumvent it. Yeah. So it's just a question of what is the level that we feel comfortable at? And I think what's happening is, is that the password thing, I mean, I don't know about you, but I've seen recently where, you know, how when you get asked to change the password, suddenly, you know, it went from being, it could be any length to being six characters to eight characters. I saw something recently that asked me to produce a 14-character password. Now, who the heck is going to remember... I will. Password. I've got, you know what? I always get yelled at by my friends because my passwords are so long. And, you know, we went to Europe recently and I had to like actually reduce my password because they've only got so many digits in their codes over there. And I'm thinking, <laughs> well, that's insane. You guys are bigger than we are. You got more money, more people than we do. And and you don't have as an extensive password as, as what us Canadians do. I mean, I can't believe that. Anyway, I was ridiculed in my group for having too long a password. <laughs> that being said, you know, on this, and, and let's talk about uh, fraud. Uh, honestly, I got I got one of these calls today, uh, Sid, where someone I'm, I met my uh, computer. Actually, I don't even think I had turned it on yet, and and I, I get this call from this guy saying my Microsoft this or that or whatever, and I've got to change this, and I'm like, really? And I mean, I can hear five thousand people in the background. It's obvious right. it's from some sort of call center or whatever. And I yep. mean, you know, I remember way back when my wife getting sucked into one of these where they literally took over control of your computer while yep. you're there. Uh, I, I can't believe they're still doing this. Um, you know, I, I started yelling at the guy because I knew exactly what he was trying to do. What advice do you have for people who get sucked into this still where this guy just calls you out of the blue and says, we got to do something with your computer right now? Yeah, I think um, doing things like raising awareness as much as we can through the media, through shows like this is is going to be important because it seems to be like the people that fall for that stuff tend to be people that um, are just a little bit afraid of technology. And so when they hear that somebody's calling from Microsoft or it's just the yeah. same when someone hears that they're calling from, you know, the Canada Revenue Agency, um, it's okay to be suspicious. And, and really, honestly, 
uh, most people have somebody in their lives that they can lean on to find out, you know, really what's going on. So yeah. my advice to everybody out there is, is that as soon as you get a call like this, an email or something, that just makes you question it. If you question it, you're not sure. Yep. Please, 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 please do not go any further with that and stop the conversation or don't reply to the email and ask somebody that knows, yeah. that you trust. For some guidance. That you know for some guidance, and they'll tell you whether or not you know, you do actually indeed have a problem. There's nothing, you know, that these people on the phone can help you with that yeah. someone locally can't help you with as well. So never, ever fall for that or, or just, just I know, hang up if you're not sure. I know elderly people now that won't even answer the phone. They'll let the answering machine pick up the phone and then they'll decide what to do because they just, they refuse to be victimized anymore. Uh, I want to ask you about one more thing that's coming up, uh, I understand, on Monday for us here in Ontario and Quebec. Uh, we've all heard of the Amber Alert system and how it works. We remember yes. when it, this came across our, our cable uh, TV outlets uh, a year yep. or so ago and everyone was wondering what the heck was going on now it appears they've gotten ahead of this with a bit of a promotional campaign and that they will be testing this coming up this monday what will this look like to us on our phones so yeah what's basically happened is is that you know our entire world has really changed where Mm -hmm. um not everybody unfortunately is listening to radio not everyone's watching i heard you vibrating there sid are you vibrating see yeah see it never stops you're constantly vibrating my friend the, the Amber Alerts are coming early to my phone. <laughs> um, so but, what can know, people expect on Monday? So they're going to expect to be able to see, uh, they're going to get messages. You may have already received a message on your phone from your carrier uh, letting you know that uh, coming up, they're making changes that when there is an Amber Alert, um, they're going to be sending messages that way because that is now proving to be the best way to get a hold of a mass audience where at one point in time, uh, it was always, you know, uh, television and radio, and, and it will continue to be those venues as well. But um, there are people that they're just finding that they'll have better reach because how many times have you talked to somebody about something really important in the world? Not not about what, you know, uh, the president of the U.S. has done, but something really important, uh, finding out, you know, that something's going on. And then people are saying, no, I didn't hear about that. And then Someone will say, what, you're not on Facebook or you're not on Twitter? So I remember what happened when these things came across the the TV, man. It scared the bejeebers out of my kids. Uh, What is going to happen on our phone? And, and, you know, the way I heard yours vibrating, you're going to explode over there. Yeah. Like, will we just, will we get the ring, a vibrating thing? Will we get that annoying beep? What will we get? Do we know? Yeah. um, I'm not sure which implementation they're actually going to, they finalize with, but I think we're just going to, it's just going to start as text messaging to your phone and a message that you can't really ignore that you're going to have to see and read. So, uh, and then kind of once you've read it and it's gone, then you, you can, move on with your life and do right. everything else. Um, I'm not sure what, because there's been bantered back and forth about the way they're going to implement this. So as far as I know right now, you're going to just get a message on your phone the way you would get any other kind of message. And uh, I guess they're going to see how that goes. And if that's not as effective as they hope it could be, then they may do something else. But there's also limitations mm. on the devices, right? The one thing about, you've, you're also talking about thousands of different kinds of devices out yeah. there. So actually being able to do something with an audio-visual effect is difficult because all phones support SMS or, or text messaging, as we call it. Um, and uh, and that's because the SMS protocol was actually developed um, by the... And it wasn't even intended to be uh, a communication that consumers used. It was actually for the engineers who were building the cell towers mm. to test and talk to each other. And that's one of the reasons why they're short wow. messages. Um, and so the whole text messaging system was built really to help build the infrastructure and ha- allow engineers who were, you know, very high up in the sky on these towers. That's why it works, to talk Sid. To each other. That's why yeah. it works. All and right. Uh, technology. All right. So be aware of that Monday on your phone. Yeah. Uh, vibrating yeah, Sid Bolton has been with us, curator of the Personal Computer <laughs> Museum. I don't know. I think that's a moniker that's going to stick, Sid. Uh, yeah, okay. Have you- yeah, I probably deserve it. <laughs> have yourself a great weekend. Take care. Okay, you too, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.